So uh, I'm going to hand over to Elroy. <laughs> That'll cut about a thousand years out of purgatory for me, won't it? <laughs> Let me just sort myself out here for a second. Dear Lord, I pray that the words that you have given me as I work through these passages will actually really bless your lovely people here this morning. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Elroy, and just for once, I am going to preach my own sermon. <laughs> Mind you, none of the people in the Bible who, was there, who were there when Jesus said these things offered to do the sermon for me. And I can understand why. Because Jesus is so cranky. How on earth could they or we link seek first, find hope with the way Jesus speaks to the people who came to him seeking his response to the story about Pilate's cruelty? And yet my personal belief is that the subheading for Luke's gospel should be seek first, find hope. Why? Because in chapter 12, he tells us to seek the Father's kingdom. And because of the two clues hidden in plain sight in the introduction to his gospel. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, especially verses 3 and 4, where he says, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The first clue is in the very name of his friend for whom he is writing this orderly account, Theophilus. Theos, meaning Greek, in Greek meaning philos. Sorry, try again. Theos, meaning God and philos, from the word that is usually interpreted as friend. I have included the Greek for those of you who need a regular Greek fix, and also to try and convince you that I might know what I'm talking about. Who knows? <laughs> I looked a little bit further, though, with that word philos, and I discovered that it also means, can you guess, seeker. Isn't that exciting? It's right there and we didn't know. And this meaning pops up in our English words such as philosopher, a seeker after Sophia, wisdom. A philosopher is not a friend of wisdom. A philosopher is a seeker after wisdom. The second clue is in the last line where Luke sets out his reason for doing all this hard work and sending his findings to the excellent seeker after God. Namely, that he can be certain and therefore put his trust in what he has been taught about Jesus. Given that two generations of Jesus' followers believed that he embodied the God of Israel. But I wondered why Luke includes so many stories showing Jesus as unwelcoming and curt. One example of this occurs just after Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem and the cross. 
when a man says to him, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Well, to me, this seems a fairly reasonable thing to do, um, a reasonable request. But instead of encouraging the man, Jesus replies, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom service of the kingdom of God. If I'd been that bloke, I would have thought, oh, well, it's not going to happen. For a while, I also wondered how he expected Theophilus to find hope in these stories. For I was aware that there were some people here at Rabina in our congregation who found it difficult to relate to this negative picture of Jesus. So I had to become a seeker to discover Theophilus' reasons for seeking the God of Israel, given that he was a Greek, not a Jew. But just thinking about the Greek gods that were man-made, narcissistic, immoral, amoral, and basically useless, it was perfectly understandable why he was looking to find the God of Israel. Because there's certainly no hope to be found in those gods. And we know from the scriptures that many, many Gentiles had been doing the same thing throughout the ages. This is why Jesus reacted with such anger when he entered the temple and saw all the traders selling birds and animals for sacrifices or exchanging normal coins for the required temple coinage. He was furious upturning the temples and thrashing around with a whip. And not just because they were robbing the poorest people who came to the temple, but because this was all set up in the court of the Gentiles, robbing them of a place to worship the God of Israel. This Gentile court had been included in the temple to fulfill God's promise to Abraham that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And in response to God's demand that by living according to his commandments, the Jewish people would be witnesses to the nations as to God's true identity and character. It was God's intention from the beginning that the whole world would know him and be blessed. As I continued to read the gospel carefully, I realized that I had grossly underestimated Luke. For it's clear that he understood exactly what Theophilus needed to know in order to be certain and therefore willing to put his trust in Jesus, the Son of God. And of course, this gospel then was used by the Lord to bring countless millions of people to that same point. Now it's too much in this for me to go through it all and then say this is what you've got to think about. So I'm asking you to think on two levels here. Firstly, how this would have impacted on Theophilus and secondly, how it impacts on you. Does that make sense to you? So I have to put you to work. No dozing off this morning, all right? Firstly, he had to show Theophilus that the new faith had its roots in the ancient faith of Israel because people in those times rejected new religions. To them, they, to them, they were just dodgy. 
They had no authenticity, as they had not survived the test of time. And he had to convince him that the God of Israel kept his promises and fulfilled his prophecies. And he did this brilliantly. He just, by weaving those birth stories whoops, of John the Baptist together with the birth stories of Jesus, it was a masterpiece. And by doing this together, he showed how the miracle of John's birth was like others in the Old Testament, with a barren woman being blessed with a long-awaited child. But for the miracle of Jesus' birth, the old pattern was broken. For his mother, Jesus, Mary, was young, fertile, and a virgin. And at that stage, certainly not longing for a child. Secondly, he had to convince him that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, the God of Israel. So Jesus' identity is discussed, debated, presented, and affirmed in countless times and in countless ways. Before his birth, by the angel Gabriel, and by Elizabeth and John in her womb. At his birth, by the angel, by Simeon in the temple, at his baptism, when Peter named him as the Christ, and at his transfiguration that Stuart spoke about last week. It is also demonstrated in his power to heal, to cast out demons, and interestingly enough, particularly with his power over the water, power that was believed to belong to the Canaanite gods, particularly the Baals or Beelzebul. Hence the disciples' fear and shock when he commanded the storm to subside, and it did. Who is this, they ask? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. And Luke makes it clear over and over again that Jesus' power comes from the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, he had to show him that the promises of God were not just for the Jews, but for all people, including the Gentiles, and therefore himself, and most of us, I would imagine. And that those who might have been excluded, such as the poor, the sick, the women, and even the hated Romans. All of these are included when they truly believe in him. So Luke shows that the faith of Gentiles, such as the Roman centurion, hated by all the Jews, is strong and recognized by Jesus. The faith of the women in Luke's gospel is stronger than most of that of the men. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, even an enemy of Israel is shown to fulfill God's law of love and compassion in stark contrast to the religious leaders who just pass by. These religious leaders had forgotten their God-given task to witness to God's true identity and character to the nations and had led their people astray by their false teachings and legalism, all in the interests of their own power, prestige, and greed. So the temple religion 
by this stage was rotten to the core. And finally, that Jesus, the Son of God, was not a statue made by human hands, but real, alive, passionate, powerful, unpredictable, and definitely not domesticated. It reminds me of the great conversation in C.S. Lewis's wonderful story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So some of you may have read it, or you may have seen the BBC uh, series, or you might have watched the movie, Narnia. The children are questioning Mr. Beaver about Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus in that story. Lucy asks, is he a man? No, answers Mr. Beaver. He's a lion, the lion, and fearsome. Is he safe? Lucy asks. Of course not, said Mr. Beaver, but he is good and he is the king. Later, he adds, he's not a tame lion, you know. He's wild and always will be. <clears throat> and I think it's that gravitas and spiritual authority of Jesus which Luke conveys to Theophilus and to us in the cranky, angry, critical stories. And that makes them very important. Jesus is the Son of God, and so he has the same glory, or kavod, as we see in God in the Old Testament. His glory implies heaviness, substance, majesty, grandeur, and might. We see it in his transfiguration, and we see how the disciples reacted with awe and fear. Yes, he can be playful but he knows that what he is doing is not a game, especially after he sets his face to go to Jerusalem and the cross. And everything he says and does after that is with the cross in mind. You can see this in the way Luke's gospel is put together. So let's have a closer look at the passage and see if there is any hope there for us as well as for Theophilus. We don't know whether these people who sought Jesus out had been in the crowd that he just denounced as a pack of hypocrites or whether it was a different occasion. But when they did approach to tell him the terrible story about the murder of the Galileans by Pilate and the horrific blasphemy he perpetrated by mingling their blood with their sacrifices, Jesus knew exactly how those people were thinking. Why? because the Pharisees had taught the people over generations that their suffering was God's just punishment for their sins. The greater their sins, the greater the punishment. And therefore the sins of the Galileans must have been very great indeed. But Jesus says no. This was not God punishing them for their sins for their sins were no worse than the sins of others, including your own, he said. Now, it would be hard for them, but if they could only have believed Jesus' total rejection of what they had been taught, they would have found hope. Oops. But then he adds the gravitas, the weight, the majesty, 
warning them to look to their own sins rather than judging others. For unless they repent, their sins will destroy them. He doesn't say that God will destroy them, but that their sins will. Then he reinforces this message by relating the story of the 18 men who were killed by the collapse of the tower in Siloam. This time, it was purely an accident, a matter of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And once again, he tells them that this did not happen to them because they were more guilty than others living in Jerusalem. God did not do this to them. But once again, he warns the people not to be complacent or to presume on the relationship between God and Israel, but to look to their own sins and change. So what is the hope that Jesus gives us? I hope already you've picked up all sorts of things as I've been speaking. He makes it clear to us that when we suffer from evil, perpetrated by people or institutions or governments or from something accidental, it is part and parcel of life. It is not God punishing us for our sins. We don't need to cry out, what have I done to deserve this God? We do not deserve it. God is there for us and with us through it. Then, in what seems to be a sudden change of focus, Jesus tells the parable of a fig tree planted in a vineyard. This is curious because both the fig tree and the vineyard are used as metaphors for Israel in the Bible. So all I could think is perhaps he's using the two to emphasize that it is the people of Israel and especially the religious leaders whom he is addressing. Firstly, and quite unexpectedly after what we've just heard, he offers a period of grace. One year for the fig tree to produce fruit. And of course, the fruit is living God's way, the fruit of the Spirit. And also, particularly for Israel, to carry out their God-given task to witness to the nations. But the gravitas, the weight, is there too because failure to produce the expected fruit will mean that the tree will be cut down and destroyed. So the idea of being presuming on God, <coughs> excuse me, or taking God lightly is tempered very carefully at the end of that parable. Even though here there is hope for if God can be gracious to those who have failed miserably to fulfill their mission and who have presumed on God's approval and yet have been a blight on the lives of so many poor, sick, suffering and powerless people, we together with Theophilus can trust him to be gracious to us. Because of the flow of the gospel, I can't ignore the story that comes after this. This is a very quick summary of it. But what it does is it shows how much the religious leaders needed to change. Here we have Jesus on the Sabbath in a synagogue and Jesus sees this terribly, badly crippled woman whose suffering he makes clear is not caused by God. 
His heart is full of compassion, and so he heals her. The ruler of the synagogue is furious, and he yells at the people. There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Pharisees standing there obviously agree with him. Well, you can imagine Jesus' reaction. You hypocrites. And he condemns them because they were prepared to work on the Sabbath if it meant keeping their valuable animals alive, but had no compassion for this daughter of Abraham, who as such should be treated with the same respect and honour as them. There is, however, a glimmer of hope here for the Jews, for the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing and for Theophilus and for us. Jesus makes it very clear that to him, our needs, the needs of the people, not man-made rules, are of the utmost importance. I hope that many of the details from Luke's amazing gospel that I've shared with you this morning have connected with you and your own journey and have encouraged you to deliberately seek God in Jesus, for it is only in him that you will find hope, which is so desperately needed in our troubled world. And I pray that through Luke's presentation of so many facets of Jesus' personality, that you might hold together the gentle, caring, familiar, beloved Saviour with the Lord who is unpredictable, stern, strong, and full of the authority and gravitas that will lead you to behold him in awe and wonder. For then you will find hope in great abundance. We will give the last word to Mr. Beaver, who said to Lucy, he's a lion, the lion, and fearsome. Is he safe? Lucy asks. Of course not, exclaims Mr. Beaver but he's good and he's the king. Amen. Remain seated as Alan leads us in a time of prayer.